Kids, you know the story of Moses? You do? Yeah? Do you know the story of Moses? Hmm. I love the story of Moses. Moses is very interesting. He's an interesting guy, and he, and he represents something in history that we've never seen before. Here's what was going on. The Israelites had come out of Egypt, and they're sitting in the sand at Mount Sinai. They're slaves. They don't know anything. And they're about to hear the story, okay? And so they're sitting there, and what is it they have actually heard up until this point? All they've heard are the Ten Commandments. We'll get there with Exodus 19 and 20. So they came out, and they saw God's power, the Ten Plagues, and they saw what he did to Egypt and how he destroyed the army when they tried to cross the water. And so they saw that, but they hadn't met God. In Exodus 19 is where they meet God for the first time. Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments shifted the whole world's policies, whole world philosophy, because nobody, no human, can ever develop a morality that God wants. C.S. Lewis argued we all have a moral compass that's just broken. So prior to the Ten Commandments, roughly 1500 B.C., that's 3,500 years ago, prior to that, there was no discussion on any country of the uh, morality of murder, for example. So it was utilitarian. So if I murder one of your children or your spouse, we're not going to get along. But we had no problem murdering the people over in Breckenridge. I mean, that's still true today. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we had no problem murdering people across the valley because it wasn't a moral issue. So when God gave the Ten Commandments, all they knew were the Egyptian laws. And all of a sudden, they have these new laws that are starting to, to develop this concept of morality. You think it's human nature to you, but it's not. The reason why you all have a developed sense of values is because of the country that you're in, okay? Come with me to countries that have zero Christian influence. I just got back from Cambodia, uh, India, Haiti, all three of those. Come with me and see those, and you'll see what a country looks like without any developed morality. Why do Hindu moms have children so they can sell them? Wow, can you imagine that? Four years old, selling your child. They have mom, they have, in Nepal, they have kids so they can sell them into the sex trade. We were just in Cambodia where we gathered up the kids on the street. These kids are all under 10 years old and they're already drug addicts. They carry glue in their pocket so they can sniff it. That's the only way they get through. They don't go to school. They're up all night because the parents wanted to make money. I'll let you figure out what they're doing. We had one young girl who's about eight carrying her one-year-old brother because mom didn't want to take care of him. So we picked him up, brought him all together. This is a ministry that they do there. Washed their hair to get the lice out, fed them fed them uh, dinner, uh, did their nails, let them paint their nails, and did all that. Okay? There's no value. There's no morals there. They didn't care. They simply don't care. And so you have a developed sense of value as families because of the country you were raised in. When you go to a country that doesn't have a Christian influence, you see the absence of all those. And so this is all the Israelites knew. They're sitting in the sand at Mount Sinai, and they've heard the Ten Commandments, and they're going, wow. We've never heard this before. This is amazing. So then Moses goes back up on the mountain and gets the rest of, of uh, the Pentateuch. Okay, he gets three books anyway. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. We've already gone through Leviticus and said that's a paradigm for holiness. But, but Exodus is a paradigm for freedom. Okay, it's a blueprint for freedom. And those are the twin pillars that we see 
as we move into the New Testament. So they saw God's power and they have the Ten Commandments. And so right away we have freedom and morality side by side. That's all they know until they begin to hear the story. And God is very interested in freedom and he's very interested in morality. And without God's intervention, none of us would have a developed sense of morality. It just wouldn't happen. That comes here, right here. And so what happens is they've been sitting there for over 400 years in slavery. Why did God let them be in slavery for 400 years? He didn't have to do that, did he? 400 years in slavery. Well, you go all the way back to Genesis. Now, we're starting Exodus, so we got to pretend they just heard the story of Genesis read. So they're beginning to say, wow, they didn't have a Bible. The Bible hadn't been written yet. They're hearing it for the first time. And they heard the story of Genesis. You know the story. God created us, and then we sinned and fell. And then for the rest of Genesis, he is beginning to work out his plan of redemption. And he goes after Abraham. And what does he say? Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the world, every nation. So you guys that are children, you're part of that blessing from a long time ago. long time ago. You're going to bless your friends. That was his blessing. And that blessing goes through the entire scripture. So when you get to Revelation, every nation is present. Five times it says that. Every nation is present in eternity. So he's going to do that. But why did God make him wait 400 years and go into slavery? Well, the last thing he says, one of the last things he says to Abraham is, I'm going to send your descendants. They're going to get this land, but I'm going to send them out for over 400 years. Because chapter 15 of Genesis, the sin of the Amorites is not full. It's not filled up. He's giving them a chance. You see, God has a line in the sand with every person. So during Abraham's time, you have Melchizedek, Eshcol. These are people doing good things. And so the Amorites, which are the Canaanites, they eventually decided, we don't want anything to do with you, God. And God said, all right, you're done. Bring them back from, bring the Israelites back. Okay, that's partly why there's genocide. Because God does not mind taking people's lives when they're done or if they reject him. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. Look at King Saul. We've got a whole litany of people that God has a line in the sand. And he's very patient. And he was. So he brings them back. Now they're sitting in the desert, okay? And, but they're slaves and they're learning. And then along comes this story of Moses. It's remarkable. Moses, Okay? What did the Pharaoh say? Kill every baby boy. That's a precursor to Herod. Sorry, all you young guys. (laughs) What do you think, Dustin? Kill the boys. You like that? Well, these two women didn't either. And they rebelled. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Kill all the boys. And so it's really a funny story because Pharaoh calls them in and says, how come you're not killing the boys? And they say, well, the, the Hebrew women are different than the Egyptian women. When they start to give birth, boom, it's just over. They give birth, we can't get to them fast enough. Well, what does Pharaoh know? He's an idiot, all right, as most guys are when it comes to delivery. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't allowed, I'm old enough, I wasn't allowed in my oldest son's delivery. They didn't do that back then. I was for the next three, but I didn't know, right? And then you're in there watching it, and you're going, whoa, well, the guys were never there the husbands. And so these women, they pulled the wool over Pharaoh's eyes. It's really a funny story when you read it. 
And uh, I mean, God's just laughing. And then God does the most incredible thing. He takes Moses and he puts them, he puts Moses in the home of the enemy of Israel, who had just said, kill all the Hebrew boys. That's where he put them. Now let's go back because they learned this in Genesis. Genesis ends with the 70 people of Joseph's line going down to Egypt where they took care of them. Okay, so God has this young nation, this little nation, and he wants to grow them. He does the most brilliant thing in the world. None of us would have thought of it. He put them in the middle of the one superpower that hated them. (laughs) The Egyptians didn't like the Israelites, so they gave them their own little plot of land. They wouldn't intermarry with them, and they began to grow. And they began, they're right in the middle of a nation that had great economics, good food supply, military to protect them, and then he just stepped back for 400 years and let them grow. And so they became a numerous nation. It's really brilliant. If, if God were to have asked me, I got 70 people I want to protect for the next 400 years, how would you do it? I don't think I would have thought of that. But that's what he did. But then along comes a Pharaoh who doesn't like it because they're becoming numerous and they're a threat and they already don't like them. That's why he says, kill all the boys. So, they don't kill the boys. But what's happening represents God's third attempt to bring about a moral world. The first attempt was with Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the one tree. They only had one command, only one, and they blew it. Why would he tell them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil? Why that tree? Isn't it good to know the good and evil? No, it's not, because you can't do it. Not one of you can do it. Because you don't know people's motives. You may think you do, but you don't. You don't know people's circumstances that lead them to decide what they decide. Picture this. Here's a boss, an employee comes in late, and the boss says, if you're late again, I'm going to fire you. And the employee says, I'm so sorry. My wife had a, had a medical emergency. I had to take her to the emergency room. Oh, okay. See how the circumstances change the, change the understanding? You don't have omniscience. God tried to protect us from the one thing we're not qualified to know. We're not created to know. That's why the rest of Scripture is protecting us. Entertain the facts only on the basis of two or three witnesses because none of you are reliable. James says if you ask wisdom, lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it generously. Paul says be very careful when you confront somebody so that you don't fall into the same trap. Jesus says do not judge and do not condemn. You don't have the capacity to do that. So the entire Bible is designed to protect us from the one sin, eating the wrong fruit, because we're not good enough to know the difference. That's why parents, when you come back from vacation with all your kids, you're so tired. He said, she said, you don't know which one's right. Right? So God tried the beginning. That didn't work. So then Noah and the flood. He wiped out everything on the earth except one, one faithful person and his family. Didn't take long. Right back into sin. Boom. So here's the third one, Israel. And uh, as we, if we were to tell the whole story, that one didn't work either, except they did produce the Messiah. So the final answer is the new covenant. And what we have right here is an army that God dreamed of right here, of faithful people. Right here. This is what God wanted all along. But he had to show us that we're not good enough. You see, what we're going to learn in this study of Exodus, a very simple idea. It matters absolutely not anything what you do for God. 
matters zero. The only thing that counts is what God does through you. That's the only thing that matters. In Isaiah 42 and 43, I love those chapters. He says to the Israelites, you are deaf, you can't hear, and you're blind, you can't see. I talk and you don't listen. I do miracles and you pay no attention. Then in chapter 43, he says, let's call all the gods together into a courtroom scene. He's going to sue the gods because they're stealing his people. And he said, so if the gods can produce one witness, we'll believe them. Of course, they can't. So what does he say? I'm going to produce my witnesses. Come forth, you deaf and blind people. What did he say to Israel? I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. You were the smallest of the nations. I choose you so, chose you so that I could, not because you're good. <laughs> they turned out to be worse than the surrounding nations. I chose you so I could demonstrate my glory. And that's a good principle for us to remember. All the accomplishments in the world mean zilch. That's why Paul can say in Romans 3, there's no one who does good. There's no one who's righteous. Not even one. Not even one. It doesn't matter what you accomplish for God. It matters most how faithful you are and watching God work through you. That's what counts. And this is all through Exodus. So he's got this story growing, and Moses is going to be born, but we have a problem. It's the first challenge. Kill all the baby boys, <clears throat> okay? So we have these two, these two women um, who decide not to do that. I'm not going to read the whole thing in verse 15, but the two midwives were Shiphrah and Puah, and there's a big debate in scholarship were they Hebrew or were they Egyptian women because their names are Semitic. But when you read it and you look at the history, there's a good argument to be made that they were Egyptian women. Why on earth would Pharaoh tell two Hebrew women, kill the Hebrew boys? That would be stupid. And so if that's the case, then the first people who trusted God were in fact Egyptian women. And this is probably the first case of civil disobedience in the Bible right here. Why? Because they feared Pharaoh? No. Verse 21 it's because the midwives feared God that they disobeyed Pharaoh. And so that's a good thing for us to remember. So this introduces a, something that we're beginning to see all the way through Scripture. So now I'm talking to all the young women out here, is that the women begin, God takes the women and lets them take the leadership in fulfilling his redemptive plan. First of all, you have these two women that refuse, refuse to kill the Hebrew babies, and then you have Moses' mother who hides her son, and then you have Moses' sister who puts him right smack in front of Pharaoh's daughter, and then you have Pharaoh's daughter. She looks in the basket, by the way, that word there in Hebrew is ark. It's a, the same word used for Noah in the ark. So God rescued the people through Noah and the ark. He's going to rescue the Israelites through a little baby in an ark. She opens up the ark and she sees the Hebrew baby. What, under the law, what should she have done? thrown the baby in the river and drowned him. No morality, but she doesn't. God does something to her heart where she takes, how'd she know he's a Hebrew baby? How'd she know that? They're the same color. Circumcision. Now that's bold. Circumcise your son, put him in an ark, and put him right in front of Pharaoh's daughter. I wonder if down the road, Pharaoh thought, 
this God has decimated our country and killed my entire army, and it was my grandson who did it. I wonder if he had that thought. You see, the brilliance of it is God put him in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's family were trained in domestic policy, foreign policy, economics, supply and demand, military strategy. They were the most educated people in the world. They were all raised to be leaders. And so God put him in Pharaoh's family, and Pharaoh himself raised up the leader who would take Israel out and give them freedom. It's brilliant. The story is so full of irony and laughter. I just know God is up there just chuckling, going, Pharaoh, your very grandson is the one that's going to do what you hate. (laughs) It's just an amazing story. These women, their names are remembered, not Pharaoh. That tells you something. And thus begins this journey through Scripture where you have women playing very important roles through the history. Think of Deborah, a general. Think of the woman in Proverbs 31, runs at least three businesses. You think of all the women, Huldah, a prophet who uh, Hezekiah went to. She didn't go to a male prophet, she went to a female prophet because she was faithful, who told him what was going to happen. Female prophetesses. And so you have this journey beginning of where God surfaces women, and here it is, it begins right here. These women who fulfilled God's plan. The uh, midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter. You see, Pharaoh wasn't down at the Nile to uh, take a bath. That's That's how we word it. Because she had a bath in the palace. The Nile was a god. She's out at the Nile worshiping a god of Egypt, who Moses is soon going to, God, through Moses, is soon going to destroy. When he gets to the ten plagues, he destroyed the gods of Egypt through those ten plagues. So you can imagine the slaves are sitting here hearing this story, going, who is this God? Oh my goodness. The Ten Commandments shift world completely in a different direction when it came to morality. We saw him destroy a nation. We were there. We saw him destroy the gods of Egypt who we were worshiping. We were there. We saw him destroy an entire army. We were there. Who is this God? And Exodus is the story in Leviticus of him introducing it. So the twin pillars of Christian theology, freedom, Paul says Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, liberty and morals, Ten Commandments. And those permeate the entire scripture right there. And they begin to surface in this book. God chooses a baby, not an army. And that's his pattern. Remember when we were talking about the prophets, minor prophets, and they were talking about the parables, and I kept asking the question, how on earth did God bring the Roman Empire, the only superpower of the first century, to its knees with 12 men? 11 disciples in Paul. How did he do that? If you were to tackle the biggest, the Roman Empire worldwide, we would probably start with military strategy, going after the elite, the military strength, the emperor. He didn't. Elders are reading a book right now called uh, Not In It to Win It. 
Jesus didn't come to win. He came to lose. And by losing his life, he won. How? By going after the underbelly of civilization, the poor people, the children, the marginalized, the widows, the disenfranchised, the orphans. And as it spread over 400 years, the Roman Empire collapsed. It's not a way any, any strategist would have done. And we do the same thing right here. He wants to bring his people out to make them into a nation that would honor him. How did he do it? Through a baby. That's how. So you can understand why when Jesus took a child and said, you have to have the faith like a child, that you can understand why. Because that's how God works. That's how he does it. When I saw those kids in Cambodia, those young kids that are already drug addicts, getting cleaned up, the mission that I was there with, they put them in school. They begin to learn. If the parents don't uh, become responsible, they go to court and take the kids away from the parents, and they put them in rehab as a young age, so they break the habit of drugs. And I got to see the kids on the other end in school. So when I was teaching, we taught in the same place where the school was. The little kids all came up and gave me hugs. They just wanted to be loved. I just picked them up and played with them and laughed with them, and I got pictures of that. You know, you could see the transition from being a drug addict to a kid that's growing and learning about Christ. Those are the kids that Jesus said, you got to become like this. Those kids on the street, the drug addicts, that nobody cared about in the first century. Nobody cared about. Jesus was the first person in human history to take a child and say, they're worth love. It's called dignity. Kids, you're worth it. You're worth love. He was the first person. Prior to that, kids meant nothing. They were below slaves. So, why did he choose a baby? This leads to a principle. We're gonna, I'm going to read a couple of verses that Paul gave us. One is in 1 Corinthians, so you can see how God works. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, remember when I said, think of the Last Supper, when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Matthew, what were you doing when I called you, when I found you? Ah, sorry, Lord. I was stealing money as a tax collector. You can go through all the disciples and see the same story. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This was the foundation that formed the kingdom that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Okay? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast. You have nothing to boast about except, as Paul said, your faith. I boast in the Lord Jesus. I'm proud to be a Christian. I'm not afraid to tell anybody. And I don't care if they laugh at me. They rarely do. They, re- they often want to talk because they're trying to figure it out and they don't know the answer. Then at the end of 2 Corinthians, we go there and he says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. 
He says uh, in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Okay, he's talking about a thorn in the flesh and he, he begged God to take it away and God says in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power, not my own, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Jesus' sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, he is strong. And that's a good thing to remember. When we are at our weakest, that is when he is at his strongest. That helps you understand why affliction and suffering. Get used to it. get used to it. Suffering is language that the world understands. Let God use you the way he wants. Let him speak his language to a world through suffering. That they understand. What they don't understand is when you respond in grace with patience. That's what they don't understand. And I know some of you are going through some really hard times. I get it. Listen to the very last verse in chapter 2. Okay, I called this sermon the need for freedom. Yes, we have to have freedom. And it's not through growing stronger, it's through growing weaker and more dependent on Christ. The students in my doctoral class, these young pastors, they asked me, what does it take to be a good pastor? Let the Lord beat you up. I lost a wife, you know that. Had bladder cancer, you know that. And you know a lot of my story. Let the Lord beat you up. And when you become weak, he becomes strong. And when you become weak, you know what happens? Your heart softens. You begin to lose things like arrogance and pride. You begin to lose it. But you've got to be willing to let the Lord beat you up. But that's not the end of the story. At the end of chapter 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Pharisees groaned in their slavery and they cried out, all these verbs we're going to see again in chapter 3 and chapter 6. Okay? God wants you to know how important you are. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, when you pray... When you pray, what we want is for God to answer like that. I guarantee you he hears you. I guarantee you he's concerned about you. But he's going to do it his way. And his way is always better. Always. We want to do the sermon first this time because you're going to have an extended period of singing and worship. And I want you to think about this. All of us have a sin nature. We don't know what it's like not to have one. Sin is so natural to us, we just blink, right? I asked the Cambodian pastors, how many of you gotten angry in the last week? According to Jesus, you just all admitted to be murderers, okay? We just don't think it's that bad. It is that bad. We don't know what it's like not to have that. But we do know what it's like to have things that hurt, okay? Things that hurt us, things that 
we're not created for. People that are after us. Okay, we live that way as Christians. Okay, that's the way Christians live around the world. They never know. They never know if they're going to live. In Haiti, they don't know if they're going to live for another week because they are of starvation. They don't know. They hope they will. And they plead with God. So all of you have something to groan about before the Lord. And so as we're singing, I want you to think about what that is that you want the Lord to hear. Because he will hear. He will listen. He won't always answer in the timing that you want. But I guarantee you he will answer. So what is it that's going on in your life? What are the hurts, the challenges that cause you to groan? Uh, The Israelites were so tired from being beaten, so weary. Where was the God that we heard about? And now they're sitting at Mount Sinai, hearing the story like you, where God says, I did not forget you. I heard your groaning. I remembered my promise, and here I am. So in just a minute, we're going to sing. We're going to sing for a while. And whatever that groaning is that you have, maybe through the words of the Psalms, okay, you can lift it up to the Lord and say, Lord, I I hurt. Would you just listen to this? Whatever this is. I've been here many times. When I was with my first wife, before she died, just holding her. Lord, would you please hear me? Please listen. God is listening. Father, thank you. Thanks for being a God who hears. Thanks for being a God who cares. Thanks for being a God who hates, hates those who hate us. Thanks for being a God who takes vengeance on those who hurt us. Father, thank you for our children sitting right here. I just love dearly. They're so wonderful. Our our future generation, Lord, our leaders. Thank you for them. Thank you for loving them more than we do and teaching us to love them. Thank you for these stories of freedom, of really what it means to trust you. Father, I confess, I'll be the first one to confess, Lord, that sometimes I wish you would move faster than I'm comfortable with. What I, I just want you to move fast sometimes. And sometimes you don't. And Lord, I confess that sometimes I struggle with those who hurt, <clears throat> hurt me and my family and hurt others. Help us to remember, Lord, what Paul said in this county. Our struggle is not against these people, it's against Satan. They don't know any better. Lord, uh, help us to love them like Jesus said, to care for them to show them sorrow because they need it too. Thanks, Father, for your kindness because your kindness is so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.